Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode is on choosing ART in the context of virologic failure and resistance. Featuring David Hardy, scientific and medical consultant and adjunct clinical professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Keck School of Medicine of USC in Los Angeles, California, and Joseph Libre, Senior Consultant Physician and Clinical Researcher in Infectious Disease and Fight Against AIDS and Infectious Diseases Foundation at University Hospital Germans Triaz in Barcelona, Spain. They'll discuss key considerations for the use of ART in patients with drug resistance, including how to build an optimized background regimen and the data to support the inclusion of novel therapies into salvage regimen. Following their dialogue, the faculty will field questions from healthcare professionals. This episode is taken from our series on key decisions in HIV care. You can follow along with the slides, which are available in the show notes. Let's get started and listen in to Drs. Hardy and Libre. Thank you, Jessica. Hi, everyone. And we're going to review what are the definitions in this scenario. In patients with multi-class or multi-drug resistance, uh, it's very important to review always all the antiretroviral treatment history, including previous biological failures, all genotypic resistance tests, and all phenotypic resistance tests of all patients to have the whole picture of the drug exposure. HCE or heavily treatment exposure means exposed to many previous antiretroviral drugs regimens or lines of treatment. And intrinsically, it does not entail necessarily a high degree of resistance. This situation is common. Very commonly, uh, most drug exposure and treatment changes have been driven by toxicity or treatment simplification. Complex antiretroviral treatment is every regimen with more than three active drugs. This is not usual, so usually it must be a reason for that, and it's usually an underlying HIV resistance. This is a less common situation. Multi-drug resistance is usually mean as resistance against drugs in three classes, usually NRTIs, NRTIs, and PIs, but it may be any of the antiretroviral classes. And usually these patients are going to receive complex regimens, but sometimes in individualized uh, situations, they could be uh, receiving a single pill in a single tablet regimen. This situation is uncommon. And limited treatment options mean that a subject is unable to construct a fully suppressive antiretroviral regimen because he has two or less than two active drugs remaining, usually due to or is associated with multi-drug resistance. This situation is actually very uncommon. Patients with HTE and limited treatment options are the real challenge nowadays. If a viral load is suppressed, physicians struggle to simplify their antiretroviral treatment. If they are experiencing biological failure, they are facing an advanced antiretroviral salvage that could be a real ultimatum to control clinical progression. And this situation, as you can see, is seen in only one to two per thousand patients nowadays. What's the scope and characteristics of this HTE population? In an analysis of monogram biosciences with more than 84,000 samples evaluated, you can see that there's a steady decline in the rates in orange of two-class drug resistance, in green three-class drug resistance, or in purple, a four-class drug resistance, which remains below 1%. 
These trends are consistent with the availability of newer drug options with favorable cross-resistance profiles and improved effectiveness and, very importantly, a higher drug-against-resistance development and more convenient formulations, all of these resulting in better adherence. What about the prevalence of HTE in people with HIV? This is an analysis of the CINIX cohort in the U.S. up until 2017. This cohort includes more than 26,000 antiretroviral experienced people with HIV receiving treatment in the U.S., and limited treatment options was defined as two or less than two available classes with two or less than two active drugs per class as per resistance testing. Genotypic resistance was performed in close to 9,000 persons, and 916 people had a limited treatment options, which is 3.4% of the overall population. Being HTE with limited treatment options was associated, obviously, with a high baseline barrel load, a, high, a low uh, CD4 cell count, older age, prior mono or dual NRTA therapy, but very importantly, entering into HIV treatment before 2006. In the right-hand side uh, a figure, you can see that the, the rate of HTE patients with limited treatment options remained quite stable, around 6%, up until 2007 when it dropped. It plummeted, and it has remained since below 1%. The reason for that was that for the very first time in a very uh, small period of time, we had a simultaneous approval of three drugs with interest in drug salvage, which include etravirin, raltegravir, and darunavir. The combination of these three drugs was known since as the TRIO, and the TRIO strategy reported for the first time rates of biological suppression at one year of 86% matching for the first time the rates that we were able to get in initial treatment. What are the population that uh, composes the heavily treatment experienced people with HIV? Obviously, every patient is a different situation, but we could say we have two main profiles. One is composed of all the people with HIV treated in the early years of antiretroviral treatment, and multidrug resistance emerged as a result of sequential partially suppressive antiretroviral regimens. So they started with mono or dual NRTI regimens, which were not suppressive and opened the door to resistance in the nukes. They failed first-generation NRTIs or unboosted uh, uh, PIs, the first generation of, N of PIs uh, years ago, and they were sequentially treated with monotherapy with new drugs. And more recently, they have been treated with regimens with a low resistance variant like L-bitegravir, raltegravir, or rilpivirin, and always in the setting of partial adherence to non-conformulated non regimens. The second population are younger people who were infected through mother-to-child transmission, so congenital HIV infection, and now they are, they are adults, they are transferred by their pediatricians, and they have been having many, many uh, HIV and biological failures during their childhood. And all this is always in a common background of initially treated with uh, less potent regimens with a low resistance barrier. Adherence issues usually including severe social problems, mental health issues, and drug addictions or alcohol addictions. And always these are complex cases. So be ready to deal with complex cases, usually with complicated lives. And I'm going to hand it over to David. Thank you very much, Josep. That was a great introduction to what has become, I think, a continued challenge for many HIV-treating clinicians. But fortunately, um, the number of patients, as you have just seen, 
has decreased with the addition of new drugs since 2007. But there's still, I think, uh, a healthy proportion of individuals who could benefit from this information that you'll learn today, um, especially with the new information about the, some new drugs that are either already out there or soon to be approved. So what do the guidelines say? You know, the guidelines are what we have used for many years, probably over two decades now, as how we have been able to try to make sense out of the many, many clinical trials that have been published or presented at conferences as interpreted by a group of experts who can give us what their feeling is. And so turning to the guidelines, I think, in this area is very, very important. So one thing that uh, the guidelines from the DHHS certainly say, and also those from the European AIDS Clinical Society, are really pretty fundamental, and that is to assess and manage a patient experiencing ART failure, acknowledging that it is complex and that expert advice is critical and should be sought. Some of us who have been treating HIV-positive patients for two or three decades uh, struggled with this time uh, back in the early 2000s uh, when we had not enough drugs and lots of patients who became resistant for the reasons that Jose just, Joseph just went over. But the major points from all this is that both guidelines advise evaluation number one of adherence. Adherence, adherence, adherence is really one of the most important things. Fortunately, that has become easier over time and really, I think, underpins why we're seeing fewer and fewer highly treatment experienced patients with limited treatment options, but also looking for drug-drug or drug-food interactions, which may lower the level of medications in a patient's blood. Drug tolerability is always important because we know that if a patient experiences intolerability with a regimen, they'll stop taking certain parts of that regimen. Always look at RNA, HIV RNA, and CD4 cell counts over time to get an idea where responses or lack of responses may have occurred. And probably the other very important thing that oftentimes does require expert consultation is to gather together as many prior and current resistance tests that are available, genotypes, phenotypes, uh, tropism tests that can really help understand uh, where the patient is in the current time. So looking at some of the DHHS and EX drug resistance information, resistance testing should be performed preferably while the patient is still failing the regimen. That we know that uh, resistance mutations are, are sort of evanescent. They're present when the resistance is being played out on the virus, but as soon as the medications are stopped, then loss of that, those resistance mutations by a shift in the population of the viruses occurs pretty quickly, probably within four to six weeks, uh, sometimes even faster. So getting the resistance test while the patient is on the failing regimen is the most important thing. And in fact, if the patient's been off more than four weeks, the resistance tests really lose their, their ability to show that resistance. We also know that resistance is cumulative so that once a resistance mutation is embedded or integrated into a patient's cells, it is there forever, even though you may not find it on the current genotype or phenotype. So this is why looking at previous ART history, all previous available genotype and phenotype resistance tests is very important. We know that archived drug resistance mutations can be detected now uh, by the uh, cellular DNA genotypes, but sometimes these may not be detected by the standard genotype tests which are used for this. And for that reason, uh, we have to interpret results from the archive drug resistance tests very, very carefully. We know that drug resistant viruses that constitute less than 10 to 20% of the total circulating virus population are likely not to be 
detected by commercially available tests that we have available to us today. So be careful um, because if it's not present, it doesn't mean that it's not there. If it is present on the archive test, we can actually start to respond to it. And the other thing to do is do not discontinue or briefly interrupt therapy in a patient who has low level viremia because there is a risk of a rapid HIV increase, a CD4 cell decrease, and clinical progression. So just a few generalities about how to manage these patients. So when do we use certain resistance tests? Well, the DHHS guidelines actually make this pretty clear. Certainly before we treat patients, it is still recommended that a genotype be, be taken. And then also at first line and second line ART failure, indicating or a suboptimal response. If the viral load's going down, but not all, all the way to less than 200, or in some cases less than 50, we know that a standard genotype is the best way to go. If there is known or suspected complex drug resistance mutation patterns, then certainly adding a phenotype to the genotype is a good thing to do. Phenotyping can be a challenge these days because there's not a lab around that offers it so much anymore, except for one in um, Northern California. And so oftentimes uh, virtual genotypes are done based upon genotypic patterns. And then also if a patient has low plasma HIV RNA levels, meaning that they have low, chronically low viremia, that is just difficult to suppress, usually somewhere less than a thousand copies. Doing an HIV-1 proviral DNA sequencing may provide additional information, basically looking at archive mutations. But this is something that should, again, also always be interpreted with caution because genotyping may miss or underrepresent certain pre-existing mutations. So how do we select a new regimen once we do have that information? Certainly adding a single antiretroviral medication to a failing regimen is never recommended. This was in fact the source of much of the resistance that we saw as new medications came out and were added one after another in a sequential monotherapy fashion, even though uh, the patient was on other drugs, they were really only being exposed to one active medication. We know that a new regimen can include two fully active agents if at least one of those has a high barrier to resistance and is fully active and included. For example, Bigtegravir, dolitegravir, or perhaps boosted darunavir. The definition of fully active means that there's no predicted resistance based upon treatment history or resistance testing. That there's a novel mechanism of action, meaning that the patient's virus has never seen this class of medications before and may include newer members of existing drug classes that remain fully active against these viral isolates um, that may be resistant to older drugs, such as newer drugs like etravirine, boosted darunavir, dolitegravir, and possibly our new drugs uh, in terms of doravirine and bigtegravir. It is important to also note that if no fully active drug with high resistance barrier is available, every effort should be made to try to use three fully active drugs, not just two. Let me hand it back over to Josette now. Thank you, David. Let's review the basic rules on how to construct an optimized background regimen in, in biological failure in patients with limited treatment options. As David said, we must struggle to construct a regimen with three active drugs, only in second-line treatment. So following a failure of a first line with an NNRTI, we should be happy with only two active drugs if they include one with a high resistance barrier, as he said, like darunavir and bigtegravir or dolutegravir. But in all other scenarios, we must go for three active drugs. It's very important to do a precise estimation of the residual activity of every drug, and this can be challenging, and it's important to have an expert advice to evaluate this carefully. 
we're going to choose the best optimized background regimen composed of drugs with high resistance barrier, often uh, twice daily darunavir ritonavir, twice daily dolutegravir, etravirin, and TAF FTC. Resistance tests are very useful to tell us when we should not use a drug with full resistance, and this means more than 60 points in the Stanford database or a history of treatment limiting toxicity. In all other situations, we are going to use this drug with residual activity. And then we're going to choose one act or more than one active drug with a new, a new mechanism of action and no cross-resistance to previous drugs. This can be Evolizumab, 800 milligrams intravenous every two weeks, Fustemsevir, 600 milligrams twice daily orally, Lenacapavir, which is under evaluation at the FDA and the European Medicines Agency, that's an oral lead-in, and then it's given subcutaneously every six months. And then there are new drugs that could have a role, but we don't know yet. They are under evaluation, including Islatravir, broadly neutralizing antibodies and other investigational products. And do not forget that we still have Enfugritide if it has not previously failed. And if the patient has a, an R5 tropism, we can still use Maravidone. All uh, salvage trials give us a limited information. Usually, we have exceptions that we're going to see, but they have limited information due to the limited number of subjects and the study designs with the absence of a complete uh, control arm due to ethical issues. We're going to review some key points. The options trial was a multi-center, open-level, randomized phase three trial assessing the benefit of adding or not NRTIs in a salvage of subjects with biological failure and resistance. To be included in this study, they had to have at least three, so more than two, at least three active drugs. The investigator chose the optimized background regimen in the salvage, and then patients were randomized to add NRTIs or not. The primary outcome was regimen failure at one year with a non-inferiority margin of 15%. And it's very important that the median continuous phenotypic sensitivity score in the study population was three. In this setting, the regimen failure, which was a composite endpoint of biological failure and stopping the NRTI assignment, any one of the three endpoints met non-inferiority. So if you have three active drugs, and remember, including in this case, always one drug with a high resistance barrier, this study, 90% of the population had fully active etravirin and 75% had fully active doravidin. So in this setting, adding NRTIs did not add efficacy to the salvage regimen. In Downing, we have been analyzing the efficacy of dolutegravir in a second line in patients who failed the first line in an RTI regimen plus two nukes. It proved, it demonstrated that dolutegravir was superior to boosted lopinavir as expected, and it reported high response rates with only dolutegravir plus two nukes, even in subjects who had a baseline M184B mutation or even other NRTI RAMs, resistance-associated mutations, 85% of people had below 50 copies at 48 weeks. And in patients with K65R, meaning that they had a tenofovir resistance and they were receiving tenofovir in the salvage regimen, again, rates of biological suppression at one year were 86%, so very high rates of biological suppression with this limited salvage regimen, but very importantly, in this second line regimen. And again, the NADIA, the recent NADIA study has reported consistently high rates of biological response with both 
the dolutegravir and boosted darunavir, actually boosted darunavir has proven non-inferior to dolutegravir in this salvage setting plus two nukes. And the primary endpoint was a vial load below 400 copies at 48 weeks. And in patients with baseline M184B mutation, 94% sorry, of those receiving TDF had a biological suppression below 400 copies. And patients with K65R, 94% again receiving xenophobia had biological suppression. In Viking, uh, Viking 3 and Viking 4, as you know, were the studies that uh, registered dolutegravir in salvage. And in Viking 3, uh, they analyzed what were the surrogate markers at baseline of having or not a biological suppression. And as you all know, having uh, the Q148 mutation plus one or two additional mutations in the integrase was clearly associated with the rates of biological suppression. Uh, you can see that those who did not have Q148 had biological suppression rates of 79% at 24 weeks, 71% at 48 weeks. This dropped down to 58% with Q148 plus one mutation and down to 29% at 48 weeks if you had 148 plus two additional mutations. And finally, regarding the runavir, we now know all the mutations that really impact the runavir. This is the list of the 10 positions in the protease that impact the runavir response. If you do not have any one of these mutations, you can use the runavir once daily in salvage. If you have any runavir associated mutations in this list, we must use the runavir twice daily in salvage regimes. And regarding the rates of biological response, this is an analysis of the power one, two, three, and the duet one and two studies. And these are the rates of biological response with uh, darunavir in salvage uh, regarding the number of darunavir associated mutations. The overall rate of response was 39% below 50 copies. If you had no darunavir mutations, it was 72% high rates of, of response. If you had one, 53, 37 if you have two, and you can see a steady decline with uh, any additional mutation. In green, uh, the comparator uh, arm with the uh, inactive boosted PI. So we can say that with four or more than four darunavir mutations, we have no additional response, no residual activity of darunavir. And I hand it over again to David. Thanks, Joseph. That was a very nice review of uh, how to build that background regimen that's really important. So this is a, the part of the presentations where I think the most of the learning may in fact occur in terms of being perhaps a little more familiar with the act, with the agents that are available and have been developed primarily for persons with high treatment experience and limited treatment options. The first uh, agent we'll talk about is the monoclonal antibody called ibilizumab. Ibilizumab is a, is a monoclonal that binds specifically to the T-cell CD4 receptor and prevents the conformational change that it has to occur when the virus's GP120 complex attaches to the T cell's CD4 uh, receptor, and therefore it blocks viral entry. So this is really a, a entry inhibitor that works by protecting the T cell against the viral uh, attachment. Uh, it's been approved in combination with other ARVs for heavily treatment experienced patients with MDR HIV infection who are currently experiencing regimen failure. Uh, it may be used for patients with insufficient treatment options as well. So it's a medication that has really been studied uh, in this group. And here's the trial. This is the, called the TMB301 trial in which patients who were uh, highly treatment experienced and had resistant virus 
were uh, entered into the study in a single arm fashion. Um, these patients had to have a viral load of at least 1,000, had been on this regimen for at least six months, stably, for at least eight weeks, and had to have resistance to at least one uh, antiretroviral from three classes and be sensitive to one and at least one antiretroviral in the optimized background regimen. So patients who had absolutely no medications in their, for their optimized background regimen were excluded. You'll notice that this is a very small trial and it is considered to be a phase three. So what they did in this study is that in the first uh, zero to seven days, they gave these individuals a loading dose of uh, 2000 milligrams of ibilizumab and while continuing the failing regimen through the whole time. And then the primary endpoint occurred at day 14 of this study to see whether or not ibilizumab had an effect on dropping viral load when given in addition to the ongoing failing regimen. After that point, ibilizumab regimen was changed slightly to give it uh, 800 milligrams uh, every two weeks as a maintenance dose and switched the optimized background regimen from day 14 on to one that was thought to be able to suppress the virus better. It's important to note that over half of the patients that came into this had resistance to all, to all drugs from greater than three drug classes and 68% had, had integrase inhibitor resistance. The mean baseline viral load was 4.5 logs, and the mean CD4 cell count was 150 cells. So these were patients that were certainly in need of the new treatment. This slide really does a good job in summarizing all the data from this trial that occurred over the 96 weeks of duration that the trial went over. And as you can see, what happened in that first 14 days was that there was a greater than half log drop, which was considered to be a virologic response, in 83% uh, of the patients. This decreased a bit at weeks 25, 48, and 90 as well, but there was in fact some evidence that even out to week 96, you can see there in the second red outline box that the endpoint of viral load proportion of patients with viral loads less than 50 actually increased between weeks 25 and 96, going from 43%, 59%, and 56%, which is something I think was really, really important to kind of see that over time, it wasn't that patients were necessarily dropping out. It was the fact that over time, what was happening is, is that more patients were becoming undetectable uh, because when a patient uh, be dropped out for, for other reasons, uh, they were taken out of the evaluation. So I think this was really kind of the important thing that over half the patients in this study reached a viral load less than 50 at, at 96 weeks. In terms of looking at some of the adverse events that occurred, uh, remember, this was a highly treatment experienced patient population, so not unusual that they had other kind of chronic comorbidities associated with them and would be expected to have some AEs. But overall, when you look at this proportion of patients that had serious AEs or AEs that occurred in at least 10% of patients, they were really kind of the usual ones we would expect in highly treatment experienced patients, such as diarrhea, dizziness, fatigue, nausea, um, and some rash. Interestingly, there were no new safety signals that emerged between week 25 to week 96. 22 of the 27 patients in the study completed treatment through week 96. Again, a high percentage for fi finishing the study. And the reasons for early discontinuation, none were related to ibilizumab of note, were things such as consent withdrawal, physician dis decision, and of course, death. Interestingly, even with this uh, proportion of patients of being over 56% undetectable, the increase in CD4 cells still occurred uh, at 42 to 45 uh, cells. So again, an immunologic response was actually occurring here. The next new medication we'll talk about is Fostemzivir. 
really the real drug that is active is called Temsevere, and it's an active metabolite of the uh, prodrug, Fostemsevir. It works by binding to the HIV glycoprotein GP120 on the outside of the, of the virus and prevents the conformational change needed for viral interaction with CD4, thereby blocking viral attachment and subsequent viral entry into the cell. So it kind of works on the other side of the CD4 GP120 connection, in this case, on the, on the viral side of the GP120 uh, conformational change needed. Uh, it's been approved in combination with other ARVs for HTE patients with MDR virus who are experiencing treatment failure uh, due to resistance, intolerance, or safety. And both the IAS USA and the DHHS guidelines really recommend that this medication is important, part, a new important medication for individuals with extremely limited treatment options and those who have detectable viremia who lack sufficient treatment options and need a fully suppressive regimen. Similar to the trial I just showed you with um, ibilizumab, the BRIGHT study looked at fostemsevir in, in a similar sort of design, except in this case, they, this time they had a uh, greater number of patients and also a placebo group. As you can see, there, was, there were both randomized cohorts and non-randomized cohorts. The randomized cohort were individuals that had at least one to two remaining ARV classes that could be used to construct a viable regimen with the remaining agents. The non-randomized class were for patients who had no remaining ARV agents and just received fostemsevir up front. In the randomized study, part of the study, fostemsevir or placebo was added to the failing regimen. Fostemsevir is dosed at 600 milligrams twice a day. At day eight, the primary endpoint day, there was an evaluation of what the viral load drop was like. For the patients receiving fostemsevir, it was 0.9, almost 0.8 log drop uh, from baseline in just eight days versus a drop of 0.17 placebo. And then on day eight, the patient, all patients received fostemsevir dose twice a day. Again, this is an oral medication and a change in their background regimen to continue viral load suppression. Thank you, David. Uh, this had the biological response and the safety outcomes oh, in, in Bright study at two years. You can see in the, in the left, the randomized cohort that reaches rates of biological suppression below 40 copies up to 60% at two years. And those in the non-randomized cohort, so uh, namely with no remaining uh, active antiretroviral classes, stay at 37% of efficacy rates. As you can see in the box below, in people with one or two active drugs in the randomized cohort, and they had 30% with viral load above 40 copies at two years, and 10% had no virological data, mainly due to discontinuation or death. And it's very important to remind that these people in these advanced salvage studies are at risk of clinical progression. And actually, they have death rates that are important. Overall, 8% of the, of the participants died in the study, 4% in the randomized population, and 14% in the non-randomized population. Regarding the tolerability, these uh, deep salvage studies are not appropriate to evaluate drug safety because all patients receive complex drug regimens, but we can say that Fostemsevir is a very well-tolerated uh, drug with very few adverse events. This drug is associated with a very important CD4 cell cam recovery more than other drugs, and you can see that the median CD4 uh, recovery at two years is more than 200 cells, 205 CD4 cells, in the randomized cohort, so one or two active drugs, and even 119 CD4 cells in those with namely no active drugs remaining. And that's an important, that can be a life-saving CD4 cell recovery. You can see that in people 
specifically with a CD4 cell count at baseline below 50 cells, 56% had a CD4 cell count above 200 cells at two years, and that's very important. And regarding the recovery split uh, between the baseline CD4 cell count, you can see that every patient had a CD4 cell recovery, even those patients with the lower CD4 cell count at baseline below 20 cells, the higher CD4 cell recovery with more than 240 cells. And regarding the surrogate markers of uh, biological response as in all salvage uh, trials, you can see that having a baseline viral load, which is high, above 100,000 copies, is associated with low rates of biological suppression, 35%. The same happens with the low CD4 cell count below 20, 35% rates of biological efficacy. And just the opposite, people with low baseline viral load or high baseline CD4 cell counts have rates of biological suppression approaching 70%. So all this data suggests that the earlier use of temsapir in salvage is the appropriate way of using this drug. And I'm going to hand it over again to David, review Lenacapavir. So the last medication we'll look at today is one that has been demonstrated in a randomized controlled trial. Uh, to be effective in this patient population with high treatment experience and, and limited treatment options, but it, it is not yet approved. Uh, we anticipate that sometime later this year or early next year, uh, lenacapavir will be on the market and available for persons in this category. So lenacapavir is a, is a unique medication, is considered to be a capsid inhibitor, and it works in many different parts of the HIV life cycle, both in terms of inhibiting binding of the virus to the outside of the uh, human cell in terms of uh, looking at nuclear transport of actually carrying the um, re reverse transcribed RNA into DNA into the nucleus, and also in terms of also virus assembly and capsid assembly. So there are multiple points here where this medication is known to work. So let's look at the Capella study. The Capella study was a trial that was set up similar to the ones you just saw in terms of certainly the Fostemzavir study, in which patients that had to have a viral load of at least 400 and resistance to at least two agents from three of four main ARV classes, but with two still fully active agents from the four main classes. A small study, again, only 74 patients. There was both a randomized and a non-randomized cohort. Non-randomized were persons who had less than a half log decrease or who did not drop below 400. Uh, on a repeat RNA just before the study started. And in terms of the randomized, there was a two-to-one randomization to add lenacapavir, first of all, as an oral lead-in, um, and then as a subcutaneous injection versus receiving a placebo initially for the first 14 days, and then switching over to the oral and then uh, subcutaneous uh, medication. It's important to know that I think the real promise of this medication is, is its use as a subcutaneous every six-month injection but also important to note that the, an oral lead-in is required in which a six, 600 milligrams is given on days one and two and 300 milligrams on day eight and then followed, followed up with the 927 milligrams given as two one and a half ml in, uh, subcutaneous injections in the abdomen starting on day 15. So that's the trial design. What was coming out of this? The primary endpoint in this study actually occurred very soon at, into, into the study when we actually saw that in the portion of patients that had greater than a half-log decline was 88% in the, those who received oral lenacapavir at day 14 versus only 17% uh, 
of having a half log decline at day 14 in the placebo receiving cohort. So a very important sort of difference there uh, that it demonstrated that the primary endpoint did in fact demonstrate uh, of efficacy of antiviral effect. Looking at some secondary endpoints out to week 26, as the patients all received their first injection of subcutaneous and lenticaparin and were about to receive their second, is that 81% of these patients had a viral load less than 50 copies at 26 weeks, 89% less than 200. And as you can see, there are smaller proportions of those who did not reach either one of those goals. The important thing also here to point out is that the efficacy based upon the number of fully active agents in the optimized background regimen was also a bit striking. In those patients that had zero fully active agents, there was still a 67% of those patients reached a viral load less than 50 copies at 26 weeks. If they had one active agent, it was up to as high as 86%, and then with two active agents, it kind of plateaued at 81%. Of note, the, median, the mean CD4 cell count increased through week 26 was 81 cells, and what was very interesting is that to begin with, there were patients who had very low CD4 cells to begin this study, meaning less than 50 cells per cubic millimeter, and that decreased from 22% of patients down to 0% of patients at uh, week 26. So when we look at the efficacy by subgroups based upon baseline CD4 and baseline HIV RNA, we know that what we are seeing here is pretty much the same uh, as what we've seen before, is that the patients that start off with lower CD4 cell counts usually have a, a, a less dramatic increase, less dramatic response in terms of viral load decrease, 78% less than 50 versus those with CD4 cells at baseline over 200, almost 90% at 89. And the same with the high-low viral load having even more of an impact here in terms of showing that viral loads less than 100,000, 86% response, those with baseline viral loads greater than 100,000 copies only at 57%. There were no differences found between those that had darunavir, uh, dolutegravir in the background regimen to those without. So really indicating that the that there is some real potency there in ilinacapavir, and no difference by use of ibilizumab or not. So really important information there as well. The adverse events were again small in number, uh, occurred uh, as you might expect as a wide variety in low proportion of patients such as diarrhea, nausea, cough, etc. The thing that, of course, was the most demonstrable here were the injection site reactions. And remember, these injections are given subcutaneously as two 1.5 ml injections once every six months. And so uh, many times at week 26, these patients had only had one injection. Uh, the usual sort of injection site reactions that cause swelling, erythema, and pain were short-lived, median duration under two weeks. I do note that there, the, there was longer duration of other parts of the uh, injection site reaction in terms of nodule formation and induration uh, lasting out several weeks uh, in after the study was, um, several days after the study, um, the injections were given. So it's important to point out that over half the patients, 40 out of 72, had at least one ISR related to linocaprevir. Most of them were in fact grade one, two, or three, but there were no grade fours, no life-threatening ones. And all 36 patients in the randomized cohort received a second lenocapavir injection. So that's pretty good durability of how this treatment was being responded to. This medication does have resistance concerns, however. And in fact, four out of 36 participants in the randomized cohort did were detected to have emerging resistance to lenocapavir. You can see the patients listed here. First visit when the resistance was detected, the capsid uh, resistance associated mutations that were seen there. 
uh, all had the M66I mutation, which I think is going to be a key mutation for this medication. The very high increase in fold change to lindacapavir that was seen here. And I think the thing that is pointed out is that there were either zero fully active drugs in the regimen in patients two and three, and in patients one and four, even though they had active drugs, adherence was in fact a big issue. So in these patients, you had lindacapavir resistance. There was either no active agents in their optimized background regimen, or they were non-adherent. And so to wrap up our presentations today, some of the take-home lessons that we can leave you with in terms of treating persons with HIV with multidrug-resistant HIV is that incidence of MDR HIV has significantly decreased since 2008-2009. And patients with multidrug-resistant limited treatment options and virologic failure are increasingly rare, good to see. Every case, however, needs an individualized approach, time and knowledge in HIV resistance, meaning expert consultation. Many new ART options are available with new mechanisms of action. The, first, the ones we just went over in terms of ibilizumab, bostemzivir, and lenacapavir means that the outlook for these patients is very optimistic. And in addition to the virologic issues due to drug activity, it is most important to identify and resolve any underlying reasons for virologic failure in terms of adherence, mental health, addiction, or et cetera. We'll end there and take any questions you may have. Thank you very much for your attention. Excellent, David. I can see a couple of questions, one of them coming from Maria Rolon. She's asking uh, about regarding the dose of dolutegravir in salvage in people with previous failures to uh, protease inhibitors as uh, integrase inhibitors have no trose resistance at all with protease inhibitors, dolutegravir can be used uh, once a day, so 50 milligrams once a day, if you have no previous failures with any integrase inhibitors or if you have no previous resistance in the integrase. And then you, you have a question from Arelis Lleras, who's asking about any uh, studies in children with uh, two drugs in salvage. Uh, from my side, I'm going to say I'm not a pediatrician, but uh, using two active drugs, it, that's a big mess in the guidelines, and that's restricted to people who fail a first-line regimen with limited resistance, only to NRTIs and NNRTIs. And the guidelines say that if you have full activity of a drug with a high resistance barrier that can be dolutegravir or darunavir, you can uh, have a salvage with that drug plus two nukes. So if one of the nukes is active with only two active drugs, but that should be restricted to uh, that scenario. Thank you to Drs. Hardy and Libre, and thanks to you, the listener. To listen to more episodes in this series and to see slides and webcasts on key decisions in HIV care, see the links in the show notes. Thank you and have a great day.